Oh, we've got Mark Dew in the room. A, a voice to read. Would you read uh, Joshua 23, 7 to 13? And the idea here, this is just kind of the context that this judge's passage is moving out of. So just kind of notice what Joshua uh, and the Lord are saying. Uh, so Joshua 23... Verses 7 to 13. Unless you go among these nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God, or else, if indeed you do not go, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them, and they to you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Is that it? That's it. Thank you. Okay, so this is what one of the uh, passages, uh, Joshua, the Lord, uh, speaking, um, and he's in front of the people. And really, this is when things were going well, but you can see there's some pretty serious warnings about uh, take heed to yourselves and continue to follow the Lord or He will stop giving you these victories. All these victories over these people, um, the Canaanites, were because God was going before them. So when he says, one man puts to flight a thousand, uh, they're not to think it's because we're such amazing Israeli warriors, that's why we're winning these battles. Uh, the Lord is doing that, and he says he can stop that at any point if they're uh, ceasing to follow him. And unfortunately, that's what we're going to see. That's actually what we've already seen at the end of chapter 1. So chapter 2 of Judges is where we're going to jump in. Uh, so after all these did-nots that we covered last week, that they didn't drive out these other uh, peoples, or they partially did, and then they would stop, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, uh, which is near Bethel, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. But as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? So the angel of the Lord, uh, anybody have idea, an idea who is the angel of the Lord? Who do we think that is? Josh. Okay. That's a pretty, um, that's probably the majority opinion, and I, I would agree with it. So, um, But let's, let's look a little bit, why do we think that? 
And we're not going to go there, but he also appears in chapter 6 to Gideon and chapter 13 to Samson's mother. Um, So on your uh, outline there, it's often called, if you've heard of the term theophany, a theophany. Uh, That's a manifestation of God in a sensible form, so something that you can see and hear. Um, And so you think about that. Why do we think that's anything other than just an angel? Well, you're going to see even here that he speaks like God. I mean, really only God would be saying the things that are said. Uh, You could go back to the burning bush with Moses, and that's similar. So uh, it's called the angel of God, but Uh, most of the time, and there are variations, and I don't want to spend undue time on this, but but most of the time speaks uh, the very words of God as if that is God speaking. So, but then you look at something like John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Or Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, speaking of Christ. So you've got lots of passages that say God, as in uh, God the Father, God the Spirit, uh, no one has seen, but His Son, Christ, is the image of this invisible God. Or one other, Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiant, again, speaking of Christ, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. And so, again, radiance of His glory, exact representation, image of the invisible God, uh, the only begotten God who has explained or, or demonstrated this invisible God. So, most... Uh, at least the solid theologians that uh, I've looked at would agree that most of the time this angel of God is, is the pre-incarnate Christ. So you can go through that if you want and, and wrestle through that, but I think that's, that's a pretty solid position. Uh, all right, and then back to Judges 2, verse 3. It says, therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. So that is the uh, punishment that's going to happen. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And so they named that place Bochim, which means weepers. And there they sacrificed to the Lord. So it seems like they had a pretty good response. They, they were sorrowful. They wept. Uh, unfortunately, if you've read ahead, it doesn't seem like this was going to turn out to be what we'd call a true repentance. And um, I think actually Wendy maybe last week mentioned there's this verse in Deuteronomy 7.22. I'll just read it to you. Um, It says, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make 
an end to them all at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And so you might go, well, maybe, you know, maybe the Lord's just doing this for that reason. He doesn't want them to go too fast because the wild beasts will take over. Um, and that promise was given, but this is pretty clearly something different. This is a, this is a judgment. This is something because, as the angel of the Lord has said, you haven't really obeyed, I'm going to leave them there. And they're going to be, this isn't going to be to help you. This is going to be allowing them to be thorns uh, in your side. Um, and then on your uh, sheet there, is this worldly sorrow or repentance? Their emotions responded to the Lord, but not their will. And we're going to see how that bears out. And I'd like to, you've, you've probably looked at this before, but I just think it's always a good chance to look at uh, the difference between worldly sorrow or repentance. We won't, again, dig too long there, but um, 2 Corinthians 7, you may even want to turn to that. 2 Corinthians 7a, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So Paul is saying, and I'm not just, I just didn't want to just make you unhappy, sorrowful, tearful, uh, but I wanted repentance. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, so here's godly repentance, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, so worldly sorrow, produces death. For behold, what earnestness. So now he's going to describe, if you're wondering, is this real repentance? Particularly even looking at our own hearts. Uh, behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. So it produces fruit. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. And I don't think that means there was nothing to repent from. I think it means their repentance was real uh, and true. And so... Real repentance should show itself in fruit. It, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the parable of the soils where you've got this initial response that they all have, or at least most of them have, but if, if, the, if it's not real, then either they shoot up and then they wilt, or they're kind of growing, but then they get choked out uh, versus the ones who keep producing fruit. And this is, this is somewhat a similar picture where you've got the fact that they cried over it uh, and wept and lamented could be a good start, but you've got to see, is it just, oh, you know, yeah, we, we wept tears and we, we just had a great worship service and I just felt uh, so deeply. Uh, that can be okay. That can be the Lord working, but it's how does that play out? Um, and John the Baptist, who did not mince words, uh, in Luke 3, 7, it says, 
he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. I mean, you would think he'd say, welcome, thank the Lord. No, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That would not be a, a seeker-sensitive message, but that was John the Baptist. Uh, but he then says, therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So it should bear itself out in fruits. I mean, just to give you a little sense of that, that if you remember the crowd asked, what should we do? Uh, and he answered, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And then the soldiers ask, and he says, uh, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So he knew the temptations that were part of the different occupations and lifestyle. And he really goes right to practical things. He doesn't say, you know, pray this number of minutes a day. And, you know, those things are all important too. But he really goes right down to uh, this should affect your life. This should transform your life if it's a real repentance. So at any rate, as it turns out, as we read about this, we're going to see, you know, I guess it's great or, or it was potentially good that they sorrowed and that they lamented, but in the end, it did not seem to be a real repentance. So then there's this kind of a shift where this next stretch is kind of a um, uh, foreshadowing of what's going to go on in the future. There's going to be these cycles. And so you really want to tune into the next stretch to see what do these look like. And as we've talked about, this is not a sequential book. Uh, there's some sequential, time sequential stretches of it, but there's also just topical where it, it'll suddenly move to something a little different. And this kind of moves to starting with, here's going to be the cycle, starting with when things were going well and Joshua has just um, given them this charge. And it says in verse 6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So you've got a good start. That's kind of how the cycle begins. They're, they've heard the word of God. They're following it. And really, this went on for at least a generation. So other than the fact that it looks like later, maybe they weren't teaching their children, the next generation as well as they might have, um, they did follow the Lord. And it says it's, it's partly because they had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Um, can you think of anything that, that they saw that would probably be primarily in the book of Joshua? Um, can you remember anything that they would have seen that would have been like, wow, the Lord was really powerful in that moment? Walls of Jericho. That is... Probably the biggest one that jumps out. Yes, that was huge. 
Okay. All right. That's good. Any others? There's a city that has two letters. There we go. <laughs> that was quick. Yeah. So first the uh, failure and then to defeat AI, and then they repented, and then the defeat. All right. Um, anything else? Yeah, those are the biggies. There's uh, um, Joshua's defeat of the five kings of the Amorites. Um, there's one other big one that was a, a change in how the universe works. Sun stood still, yeah. Um, so that they could continue to fight. Uh, and they also hailstones, uh, and it literally said when they were fighting the five kings, more were killed by the hailstones than by the people of Israel. So that was horrific for uh, the Amorites. So yeah, they had seen those things. And again, as we apply that, it's just a good thing. Uh, I certainly need it. Where once in a while, um, if you're, I always assume you're at least a little bit like me, uh, that life gets busy, you rarely just sit and ponder anything. And we would do well to do that once in a while. And to remember, even write, you know, sometimes I just have to write it down, things I can remember that God has done that particularly stood out. I mean, obviously, it should start with salvation, with what Christ has done. That's always going to be top of the list. But, but then specific things in our uh, life, in our walk with the Lord. What, what great things do we remember that he's done in our own life? And those things are good because it, we're going to see that uh, the next generation didn't seem to have those things in mind. And it, uh, it had a a big negative impact. All right, so down to verse 8. Then we have Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance. Uh, verse 10, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So you've got two things they didn't know. They didn't know the Lord. Um, and again, you, you probably have heard that word for know is a very intimate, experiential walk, a close walk with the Lord. Uh, it's even used a physical intimacy between a, a man and a woman. So... Uh, when it says they didn't know him, they didn't really walk with him. They didn't really have that kind of uh, personal knowledge. And there's, uh, I think we all know, there's a huge difference between a personal knowledge, a personal walk with the Lord, seeing how he's worked in your life and heart and world versus just hearing what he's done with someone else. And that can still be encouraging, but if, it's, if we're lacking in that personal knowledge, uh, it's going to be a much weaker connection. So Hosea 6.3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And another one that you're probably familiar with, Jeremiah 9.23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, 
Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So that's really something they were lacking. Again, we want to always think, how am I doing with that? Am I having a daily walk with the Lord? Am I conscious of him, thinking of him? And, and those things go up and down, but we just don't want to let, uh, I had a missionary say to me uh, about a week ago that he just felt like he was in a pretty dry state. Well, the good thing about that is that he notices that and, uh, and wants uh, to draw near to the Lord, that the Lord would draw near to him. All right, and then also... Um, they didn't know the works he had done for them. And this is the part where you really do feel like that's where the, the prior generation uh, needed to have been active. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So starting with that personal walk. And then these words which I am commanding you, shall be on your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And I like uh, a similar one a little earlier in Deuteronomy that talks about when you, when you have all these victories and things are getting comfortable, it says, Deuteronomy 4.9, take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. So again, that, that tendency we have to forget, unless they depart from your heart. So not only we don't think of them, but they don't really affect us. They don't really move us anymore. Um, all the days of your life, the different seasons we go through. And then it says, make them known to your children and your children's children. So it pulls in the grandkids there. Um, that, that we want to be careful to be not only keeping them in our own hearts, but passing them on to the next generation. So, again, we want to look how are we doing with uh, our personal experiential walk with the Lord and how are we doing it with passing it on to the next generation with, with whatever ways. Um, I think for the sake of time, we won't... Uh, uh, I was tempted to take some time, but I think it'd be a long time. So you'll have to think on your own. Uh, what are some things that, uh, think about maybe this afternoon if you get, uh, can take a few minutes. Of what are the things that really do help me to keep my walk with the Lord sweet? Uh, things that uh, kind of kindle my affections, that help me to, to seek Him and, and even do the hard things of pursuing Him. Uh, and then are there ways, if you still have access, and most of us do one way or another, with kids, grandkids, perhaps just younger generation, um, speaking into their life and heart. Uh, and it may be some of the things God's done for you. Uh, sometimes we're thankful to the Lord, but we don't really share that a whole bunch. Um, so just encourage you to uh, think on those things a bit. 
All right, so then we go into this, uh, unfortunately, a repeated downward spiraling cycle of sin. And we, we touched on this briefly in the, when we introduced the book of Judges. We want to look with a little more detail. So uh, there's been this good start, these people who were with Joshua, they were doing well, and now you've got uh, Israel sinning. So the people falling into sin, stepping into sin. Uh, it says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Um, Baal, by the way, was a Canaanite god of uh, fertility, life, rain. So it, there was the belief that you had to serve him uh, in order for there to be fertile crops for the next few years uh, and also involved just a lot of horrific things, sacrifice of infants, sexual orgies, etc. Um, Verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. And the Ashtaroth was, uh, depending on what uh, records are found, sometimes it was uh, Baal's mother, sometimes it was his lover, but it was kind of the female version of Baal. So if we're kind of pulling some, a few principles out of Israel's sin, uh, it's just a reminder that, uh, and that's on your sheet, we are prone to forget what the Lord has done for us. And as we talked about a minute ago, that we need help, to, and we need to help ourselves, or to speak to our own soul about those things. And then second, we are molded, and that can be either strengthened or corrupted by what is around us. So those things that we're in contact with regularly. Can you think of any verses that say that in one way or another? Good. Um, As a man thinketh, so is he, and is a proverb. Okay. All right. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Any others? Right. Yeah. 12 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Okay. Uh, there we go. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. All right. Um, the one Josh said was Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. All right. Got one more. Anybody got it? Um, about anger. Uh, Proverbs 22, 24. Do not associate with a man given to anger. Or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. So Scripture's pretty clear about that. It does matter who we hang out with. Uh, again, that doesn't mean you don't ever minister to somebody uh, given to that or have some kind of connection and hopefully be an uh, instrument of the Lord in their life. But it does mean we, we want to be careful about who we really decide to have close friendships with and who we hang out with on a regular basis. 
it's time to do scripture typing. <laughs> All right. Um, and the next one down, we will end up worshiping something. If not God, then some infinitely lesser substitute. And you are well aware, and some of you have it on the walls of your house. Joshua 24, 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I do think for a lot of reasons, it really is good to remember it ourselves and to sometimes remind people we're talking to. It's easy to to throw doubt at the Christian faith. It just is. You can come up with different things and say, well, what about this? Or are you saying you believe this? Or how does that work? That doesn't seem... And so, and those are things that are fine to think through as uh, believers. But I always think, and, and honestly, this is one of those things that I often do ask back. So what do you believe? What do you... How do you think all this came to be? How do you think you and I are having a rational conversation? What is, what is the, the start of all of that? Now, you're, you're not going to just logic them into the kingdom. But I do think it's a good, and it's even, uh, frankly, a, a help to my own faith when I think about the explanations and the, the gods uh, that are the alternatives. Uh, it really helps me to uh, press in with the Lord. Um, so, uh, because in the end, we will end up worshiping something. What, um, just kind of quickly, but what do you see as kind of the top few things that this culture worships when they reject God? Mark. The earth. What's that? The earth. The earth. Absolutely. It is amazing to me. I listen to this, these really brilliant medical bloggers, and they go through all this really complex stuff, and they know their medical stuff like crazy. But they'll throw out, well, yeah, I don't want to mess with Mother Nature. Or I don't want to. And I know they're not completely like I really believe there's a... But they're like sort of forced to say something about how things happen. And so they end up, yeah, throwing out the, things like that. Um, any other things that are personal freedom. personal freedom? Okay. Yeah. So, and we could even just say all kinds of versions of self, you know, things that we want. Uh, we certainly, I would say, uh, honestly, I am just so weary of seeing pictures of people doing a selfie. Um, that's, that's kind of the culture we're in though. That's, that's, Super common. Any other come to mind? Wendy? Ease and comfort is kind of like what you're talking about there, but the, the life of a believer is discipline and, and dying to self and right. just as quick as I can get it. Yeah. It's not, not hard, not too hard. Yeah. So. And, uh, and I would even say, even though we're called to that, we're not immune as believers, as you know, uh, to that. that um, Again, unless I'm the only one. Uh, comfort and ease and 
whether it's hit the snooze or whatever it is, there's just a lot of things that keep us from pursuing the Lord as well as we otherwise might. I have actually been referring to personal freedom as the principle, not as in this individual is worshiping their own personal freedom. Okay. This would be the viewpoint that says, you are the gender you say you are. Anything you believe is true for you, dot, dot, dot. Okay. Uh, Exaltation of a human's ability to, to find everything about themselves and everything about the meaning of the universe for them personal. Okay. I think it quickly spills over, though. I like to apply that to myself if I'm defending it, but good. Okay. Okay, so, I mean, you can think through your own things, but we, it isn't like you can just be a skeptic. I think of that in, in medicine as well. We used to go around back in residency days in these little groups and you had the chief attending doctor who is the you know, all-wise guy, and then you might have a resident and then an intern and then the lowly med student. And so usually the med student had to present the patient. You'd go and you'd talk to the patient, you'd find out some information, and you had this very specific way you're supposed to present it, and then you've got to say, here's what I think we should do to treat it, here's the plan. And it just seemed like the attendings and then the interns and residents would learn the same thing, would always go, I'm just not sure that's really going to be the best thing for him. Now, are, are you really sure? And it, th that sort of skeptic always would win the day because you could always question. But in the end, and they knew this, you had to treat the patient. You had to, you had to say, you, you couldn't just say, yeah, we're just not sure and walk away. You had to say, well, we're not sure about this, but this has better evidence for it and so on. So again, that idea that we're going to believe something, we're going to worship something. Um, and unfortunately, Israel chose some pretty awful alternatives. And I've got there Hosea 3.1 uh, is when the Lord said, go again. And he's, he's likening this leaving him for something else as an unfaithful wife. Then the Lord said, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. It's always been a striking passage to me. They love raisin cakes. I don't think that was just a trivial... Uh, <laughs> Oh, that's we're against raisin cakes. Um, but the idea was that they were going after other gods and all kinds of indulgence uh, and self-gratification uh, was pulling them away from God. And yet, that book of Hosea is just such a powerful thing where in the midst of all that, God sends Hosea uh, to bring them back. Um, all right, so then number two, so you've got Israel sinning, and then God brings judgment and oppression. Uh, verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold, and, and that word is the opposite of when we talk about redemption, that, the God, that God saved us, redeemed us. This would be the opposite of that. He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Uh, and again, that, a better translation of that, that word can be uh, evil, 
but it's also harm or disaster, and I think that fits better in some of the other um, versions have that. So the Lord was against them for disaster or harm as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. So all this judgment would fall on them in this pain and despair. Um, And um, you've got on there a a pretty well-known Quote about pain. Pain in, this is C.S. Lewis. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we're going to see in this cycle the same thing, that that was how God worked. It was judgment, but it was also a discipline to bring them back. And, and even more in the New Testament, we won't go there, but Hebrews 12 that talks about if we don't have any discipline, if we don't have any pain in our life, that that would indicate that we're not uh, being treated like God's children. We're not being disciplined. And the, the positive, because again, everyone has pain. If you're not a believer, uh, unbelievers may have certain things where they're able to build comforts around them temporarily, but... Uh, they experience their own pain as well. The difference is our pain has a purpose, which makes all the difference. I mean, in the middle of it, it may not feel like that makes all the difference, uh, but it really does when you've got a loving father that's using that pain. I couldn't resist putting in a princess bride quote. So life is pain, princess, and anyone who tells you differently is either lying or selling something. Uh, Again, that idea that it is everywhere. Uh, And so we at least have uh, the enormous benefit of God using it um, for discipline, not just for um, punishment. All right. And then, um, so the people cry out and groan um, is the next Uh, God can be moved to pity and to action by the cries and groans of his people. So again, that's just another thing that I think should should bring us some comfort. Uh, Sometimes I think we picture God as, yes, he is unchangeable, yes, he is immutable, uh, and yet he's described as Uh, being able to be moved to pity. So uh, verse, kind of jumping down to verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. So there's this great big word that you don't really need to learn unless you want to, but uh, anthropopathic. Now, you've probably heard of anthropomorphic. This is anthropopathic. And it's the idea that sometimes God is described in ways that are really more for human beings so that we can understand him better. Um, I'm not going to delve too deep into uh, that, but regardless, Scripture is saying that the way we should think of God is that He is moved, he can be moved to pity, and then takes action uh, 
because of the groan, groaning of his people. Again, you know, we hit this, you know, over and over that God, did God already know he was going to do that? Yes, he did. But he is wise enough to know how all that can be fit together into uh, the cries of his people and having a real response to that. So if we're in a place where we're struggling and suffering, um, it doesn't mean he's going to do it on our timetable. But again, when we think back of how the Lord has dealt with us in the past, we may have times where we're like, I don't know why he didn't answer that quicker or the way I want it. But again, if you're like me, there are times that I can remember where I was pretty distraught about something where he very clearly stepped in. So he's going to do it in his ways. We can't force that uh, and say he has to do it this way at this time. Uh, but again, I think to look back on times where he really did meet us, uh, often in response to those kind of cries. Maybe not, again, in the way, exactly the way we would have scripted it, but still in a very definite sense. Uh, number four, God raises up a judge and delivers them. So back to verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And we're going to see the people didn't listen to the judge. So really that, that salvation that he brought, the deliverance he bought, brought, is even all the more gracious because the people weren't really in a, in a solid clear repentance. They were still kind of going their own way, but they had at least cried out and God chose to pity them rather than to just say, you really haven't gotten this straightened out yet. You're not even listening to the deliverer, so forget it. Now, you know, again, if they persist in that, the cycle uh, repeats itself. But I think that also should tell us that um, how um, impactful uh, of an instrument a godly leader can be. And some of them weren't even as godly as we would have liked. In fact, probably none of them. Uh, but God would raise up these leaders and would do great things, and it would be as long as that leader lived. So you've got this great mess. And I think, again, that sort of applies to our time. It, you can kind of just despair and say, you know, things are just such a wreck that why even bother to um, try to pursue the Lord and particularly to lead in pursuing the Lord when all this is going on because it's just not going to make any difference. But God can make a difference through a godly man or woman, and it may not be a whole nation that, that you impact, but uh, the people in your sphere, he can do that. And it's not based on how strong we are and how perfect we are even, uh, but God can use those things. All right, and then, yeah, number five, the people do not listen to the judge. Uh, it says they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. So again, they're going to worship something, and unfortunately they kept turning away from the Lord. Uh, they turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And then six, when the judge died, the people became even more corrupt. Unfortunately, these cycles weren't just cycles. They were downward cycles where they seemed to get worse and worse as they went. Um, and seven, God's anger burned against them, verses 20 and 21. 
uh, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. And you've got that um, little arrow diagram just to kind of summarize that. And then two final takeaways uh, that I think should at least... Uh, give us a little bit of encouragement in the midst of a pretty dark cycle. Um, it's a huge consolation that in the midst of our sin and suffering, God is working His good purposes. I'm going to read, I refer to it a lot, I'm going to go ahead and read it this time, uh, Romans 8, 28, 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The reason that's such a well-known verse is it says it so clearly and concisely that God is working in the mess of our lives. And not that we want to, this shouldn't encourage us to sin, but when we do sin, that he even works through that and how he responds to that. And it keeps conforming us to be more like Christ. So each thing that happens. And then the, the last is these endless cycles of sin and deliverance and sin again point to our desperate need for a perfect deliverer. And uh, you could probably lengthen that list, but one with perfect wisdom, perfect motives, no sin, total ability to save not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin, able to give a salvation that is eternal so it doesn't just fade away or depend on us uh, living out a perfect life, uh, and one who has the greatest of love. Greater love has no man than he gives his life uh, for his friends. So all, all of that, and I, I went quickly, maybe even quicker than I had to, but... Um, gives us this picture of this people who had started with Joshua, things were going well. Uh, it's a strong reminder to pass on uh, at least the knowledge of the faith. We can't save our kids directly, but passing on that knowledge of the faith to them. Uh, and God often works through that to bring them to faith and help them to, to have the next generation also uh, following the Lord. And then, yeah, being sure that we're keeping our own knowledge of God and, and reminding ourselves of His work in our own lives to keep our uh, walk faithful. Um, and the other would be to seek to truly repent when we do fall, that uh, not to have just a worldly sorrow, but a, a godly sorrow, a repentance that, that bears fruit and shows itself as being uh, the real deal. Okay, any other questions, comments? Okay, let me pray. Father, you are a good and patient uh, God, and we are uh, so thankful for that. We're thankful for mercy, for grace. Uh, we're thankful that you can be moved by our um, sorrows by our groanings that you 
respond, that you uh, care about those things, and that you work. And we thank you that you work in ways that are perfect, not in the imperfect uh, ideas that we have about what would be best. Uh, Lord, help us to trust you uh, when we can't always uh, see your purposes. Uh, I suppose we never see all your purposes. Uh, But help us to be able to trust you as a good father, one who has not walked away but uh, allowed his son to be given and killed uh, on our behalf. Lord, help us to not forget those things and and not to grow cold about them. Uh, Lord, we pray for your spirit to work in each of us to quicken and... uh, Uh, refresh and warm us uh, to you and to have a deeper and stronger affection that works itself out in godliness and obedience. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.